Welcome to Literary Quest, a podcast hosted by us, Vicki and Marissa, where we discuss our favorite and fantasy fiction and hopefully can direct you in your quest to find your next great read. Welcome to Literary Quest. Today we are going to be discussing Dark Fever by Karen Marie Moaning. Um, we're talking about this because I will be going off to Ireland and Scotland for two weeks. So this is some inspiration, I guess, of what not to do when in Dublin. Um, so <laughs> starting off with our characters, we have Michaela Lane. She's our main female character. She's 22 years old. She's somewhat unambitious. She has blonde hair, green eyes. She learns that she is a she-seer and a null on top of that, which means that not only can she see the Fae, she can also freeze them temporarily. However, she's unaware of this until she travels to Dublin. She has an older sister, Elena. They are two years apart and were best friends. Unfortunately, when Elena went to Dublin, she was brutally murdered. The Irish police have closed the case without any leads, so Mac goes to Dublin to solve the case herself. Next, we have Jericho Barons. He is our main male lead in this book. He's mysterious and secretive. He appears to be around 30 years old and owns a shop called the Barons Books and Bubbles. He's rather condescending and constantly tells Mac to leave Ireland. Um, it's unclear how much he can be trusted and whether or not he's a threat. Uh, we have various unseely fae pop up uh, in this book. Uh, so I'm not going to go into each one of them, but essentially they're very ugly fae um, and evil, but all fae in this series are. Um, they feed off of humans. Of the unseely fae class or cast, I guess, only the royal unseely fae are very beautiful. We meet one of them, Blaine. He's a prince. And she considers him a death by sex fae because they're so sexually potent that a human dies from intercourse unless the fae protects them from the full impact of its deadly eroticism. So this book takes place in Dublin, Ireland. At the start of our story, Michaela Lane, our female main character, is living her best life as an unambitious 22-year-old woman but things rapidly go awry when she receives a phone call that changes everything. Her sister, Alina, who was studying abroad in Ireland, was found dead. The news leaves Mac and her parents reeling in a haze of grief, which for Mac quickly turns to rage and purpose when the police in Dublin declare the case to be closed. Her purpose is further fueled when she gets a voicemail from just hours before her sister died that makes no sense but mentions something called a Shisa Du and a mysterious man coming after her. Determined to discover who killed her sister, Matt goes, against her parents' wishes, to Dublin. She makes an appointment for later in the week to meet with the investigator, Inspector Duffy, who's handling Alina's case, and begins the process of cleaning up and cleaning out Alina's apartment. She has dinner in a bar one evening where she sees something very strange. A beautiful man walks in, steals an expensive bottle of alcohol, and no one blinks an eye about it. 
Mac is just about to confront him when an elderly woman hits her, calls her an idiot for staring at the man and for endangering herself and everyone else, and then leaves. Mac is baffled, but chalks it up just to rudeness. Mac begins questioning Alina's teachers and classmates, which paints a very different picture from the sister Mac knew. She learns that Alina frequently missed class and often looked harried or tired, especially later in the semester, which was not like Alina. Her conversation with Inspector Duffy is also unproductive, and Mac's attempts to discover the shisadu are fruitless, as she has no idea what she's looking for or how to spell it. While wandering through Dublin one evening, she gets lost and ends up in a deserted part of town where there are cars abandoned in the road, yellow husks rolling down the street like tumbleweeds and piles of clothing randomly scattered. It gets darker and she begins to panic when she spots a shop with lights shining in the dark called Baron's Bobbles and Books. She enters the shop where she calls for a cab and while waiting, she speaks with the woman running the cash register, Fiona. Mac mentions the shisadu to Fiona, who immediately begins to act suspicious. And shortly after, the owner of the store, who has tremendous presence and is named Barons, arrives at the store and immediately begins asking Mac about the shisadu. He reveals that it's a book and that he's looking for it, and he hints that Mac may be in danger and suggests that she leaves town. He acts threatening, and Mac's cab arrives at the perfect moment to whisk her away. However, that night, Baron shows up at Mac's hotel where they both exchange information, and Baron strongly encourages slash basically threatens Mac to go home or she'll end up dead. Mac is determined, though, and she spends the whole next day trying to figure out what this Shisa do is. But she can't really understand the information that she finds because it all hints at completely mythological creatures called the Tua Dei or the Fae Folk. She goes back to Barron's and is pissed because this doesn't seem like it could be real and confronts him about what she read and then thinks he's completely mad when he agrees with the existence of these creatures. The problem with knowing, though, is that once you know something, you can't unknow it. And so Mac, with this information, later runs into what can only be a fey creature, specifically an unseelie, which is a horrifying looking monster. This is problematic because she literally runs into it and the only people who can actually see these creatures are a group called the She-Seers, who the fey hunt. Mac immediately runs to Barons, explains what happens, and Barons, in his standard high-handed fashion, declares that Mac will be moving into the spare room in the store for her safety. This works out well for Barons, as it keeps Mac, one of his links to the mysterious book, close, but also he discovers that Mac is sensitive to and can detect fey objects of power. And so he begins taking her to meetings with his associates so that she can determine if any of them have any of the fey objects which he wants. They discover too. Rocky O'Banion, who is the mafia leader of Dublin, has possession of the Spear of Destiny, which they steal. And Malouche, who is a guy who is allegedly a vampire with a pretty significant cult following, has a fey stone, which Mac also steals. O'Banion and his associates come to Barons in the night for revenge, but Barons turns out the bright exterior lights 
outside of his shop and the shades, which are a low-level, unseely, that exist only in the dark and that eat everything living, every living thing in the dark, take out the threat for Barons. Barons sends Mac to a local museum to look for objects of power, which has disastrous results for Mac as she en- encounters Valaine, who is a death by sex fay. He's gorgeous, glamours her to make her super horny, and attempts to rape her in the museum, but Mac is able to break his thrall, though she is embarrassingly naked in the museum. She has yet another run-in with the angry elderly woman from the bar earlier in the book, who is stunned at Mac's ability to escape Villain and demands to know her heritage. Mac declares herself a normal woman from Georgia, but the elderly woman implies that Mac must be adopted. Mac later questions her father about it, but he gives evasive answers and does not deny that she was adopted. Mac is feeling pretty low about things and not any closer to getting answers about her sister's death, so she goes to the street where Alina's body was found. In the debris, she finds that her sister used a nail file to scratch an address into the concrete. She confronts Inspector Duffy about it, but he implies that Alina died because of drug use and states that the address she carved does not exist. Mac finds this really suspicious, though, and she uses maps of the city to discern that the areas that have been overtaken by the Shades don't appear on newer maps anymore, like the people just forgot that they existed. And so she finds the mysterious address on the map and, determined to find answers, takes off into the Dark Zone, armed with the Spear of Destiny. Will Mac get the answers that she wants, and will she make it back out of the Dark Zone alive? Spoilers, my friends. All right. So this is book one, and it's part of a very long series. Um, And we covered the very last book that came out. It was Kingdom of Shadow and Light. Um, That came out last year. So if you're listening to this and have read these books before, we, we have talked about the very last book in this series before. You should go check out that episode, too. Um. Spoilers abound, if if not. All right. So I've read this book several times now. I've read the first few books a few times. And I know that Mac is kind of dumb and Jericho is an asshole, especially initially. But I cannot separate my feelings for them and how they grow from how they are in this book. I just, I love them it reading this book feels like coming home to me i love these characters so much when i first read this book i was in a horrible semester in pt school and i found this book on through my library and was just desperate to separate in some i think i might have been on a break like we got two or three weeks between semesters so i think i might have been on a break and i started the series and just devoured these books in the time that I had off. So to me, I have a lot of positive, strong feelings and memories about them um, because they came to me at a time when everything felt awful. Um, This was also my first foray into Fay lore was it yours no i read a guitar first okay 
Mm -hmm. And this was my book, I think, directly after A Guitar. It was either this or um, The Fae Chronicles by Amelia. But uh, those are the first three books that I read after A Guitar. It was A Guitar, this series, and then The Fae Chronicles. Yeah. Yeah. So. so this was my first foray into Fae lore. And I just enjoyed the depth of the world that was created and the descriptions and the entire mythology so much that it led to reading oh gosh I feel like for a long time all I did was read books that were set in or around fairy so for me so like I said I read this book um it was wasn't my first foray into say but it was close to it um, and I really enjoy it. And like you said, I love the world and everything like that. I'm, I think, less attached to the characters. I really like Mac later on in the series. Mm -hmm. She's rough in this book. Um, but she grows a lot. So I completely understand what you're talking about when you say, like, um, them growing throughout the series. Um, I just, Jericho, to me, doesn't feel like he grows as much. But I've only read the series once. So maybe if I go back and read more of it. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, it'll be different. Know. So yeah, I don't know. But I really like them. This is a really, the world that she creates is detailed and deep. Mm -hmm. um, she's got so many different, like, it's, it's amazing. She has so many different types of fae, so many different um, lores going on, different worlds, like she keeps track of everything that she does. And I love, and I see you have a note about this too, love the back of this book with mm -hmm. pronunciations and glossary. It's fantastic. And what I like about it too is that it's written the way Mac would have written it as well. Like it's so, it's, it's cute. And what I really appreciate is that we start out with the glossary in the back and every time in every book, the glossary just gets bigger. So she adds all of the new characters every single time we still, and it's organized. I feel like sometimes when you read books that have this very rich mythology, the author kind of throws you in and it's like jumping into the deep end. And it kind of feels like you're drowning in all of the words that are spelled weird plus the characters and oh kind of like what you described with um lord of the rings for example like there were just so many names to keep track of right mm -hmm. and so what i like about this author is that reading the book is very it, like it's an immersive experience there's so much so much description but it's done in a way that doesn't make it feel like you can't navigate where you're at mm -hmm. yeah and I think that's also probably one of the reasons why. So I think there are several reasons where she starts off Mac, where she starts off Mac, right? Mm -hmm. And I think one of them is because as a new reader coming into this as well, she's not expecting you to know her world, right? So mm -hmm. if she, you just get thrown into this, it would make it a lot harder to read and enjoy the series where you're kind of, I don't want to say gently because it isn't really gentle, but you're put into the world the way that Mac is. And I feel like she writes it for like, by writing it from Max's point of view like that, she's writing it for the reader mm -hmm. as well to slowly grow along with the book. Yeah. And learn more and build yeah. in each book. Yeah. 
I mean, I know that you don't really like, like Max character. I still liked Max character. I still like Jericho. I know he's a jackass. I still like him. And I still like Mac, Mac, even though she's kind of an idiot, especially in the first few books. But I feel like the way that she has written the characters, particularly Mac, like you said, kind of like we're reading the story in the way that Mac would respond to learning all of these things. I think it makes the character more believable as well. Mac is naive. She is 22. She is from small town, low crime rate, Georgia. Her job, she's taken like community college classes and she works at a bar where the biggest issue she has is maybe with like rowdy, rowdy patrons in her small town. Like she hasn't encountered, she's a privileged white upper middle class female mm-hmm. and is very sheltered. And so I think that all of the fumbling that she does when she gets to Ireland is very true to how someone in that situation would respond. And I think it makes the character more believable. It's annoying because how could you be this dumb? But at the same time, if she were this smart, and we've kind of talked about that before with some characters where it's like, uh, why are you this self-aware? Like I Mm -hmm. can see that because I'm reading it from an external person. I'm not living it as the character. Um, but you don't expect characters to be super self-aware sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I think that her naivete and all of the mistakes that she made, the foolish interactions that she has with Jericho feel very true to what this type, who this type of person would actually be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, the author did a good job of writing her. Mm-hmm. One of the things that bothers me about her character, and I mean, this is just, I mean, you see it, she's kind of, you've heard that phrase, like pick me, right? Yeah. Like a pick me girl. I got that vibe from her in some of these things. Like, She's like, I like books better than movies. And I admit it, I'm old fashioned and I like cars and the color pink. Like, aren't I unique? Mm-hmm. So like, I got that kind of vibe from her, which is annoying to me. But like, again, this is something that like, if you can push through the first couple of books, like she gets a lot better um, mm-hmm. and it gets less annoying. The other thing that annoyed me, so this actually does carry through. I feel like a lot of the book, we keep seeing this pop up, is um, the misogyny that she's internalized a little bit. Yeah. Um, like the quotes from her mother like there's this one quote from her mother where it's like oh you know like play hard to get because men feel like they've won a prize Mm -hmm. and they'll hold on to it all the more and it's like you're not a prize you're a person um and it's interesting and I don't know if the author wrote her like specifically to have this like um internalized misogyny or anything but um I know when I was reading it, there are some parts where I was like, the misogyny is coming from inside the house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard and frustrating to read that, but again, small town, Southern Georgia. Yes, I know. Especially, yes. White privileged parents. Her dad is an attorney, like a tax attorney. And her mom is a, I think a, a homemaker 
Yeah, it is. It's frustrating and at times hard to read. I also think that our awareness about those things is much greater. This book came out in 2006, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that I don't, my perspective on things like that now is very different from how it was in the past. And so I feel like some of those things maybe haven't translated super well, but I mean, also like she references things that people do in the South a lot too. And I feel like people still do those things in the South. Yeah. I mean, that type of like, uh, giving the milk away for free mentality still kind of pervasive down here. It's frustrating to read those things, but I feel like there are parts of the South that still kind of endorse ideas like that. Mm. So our character's not as feministy as we are. <laughs> no. At least not yet. I don't actually know that she gets much more feministy. No, yeah. The, that carries throughout the series. I know she gets smarter, she gets kind of less pick me, but I always feel like I feel like in every book there was some point where I was like, oh no. Um, and it's normally associated with like a quote from her mother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, generationally, I feel like that really does make a lot of sense. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, I know that you don't like Barons either, but I love I him. Yeah. He's terrible and a jackass a lot, but I still love him. <laughs> I, I don't know. He's just one of those bad, like toxic characters. That's kind of a bad boy. And I wouldn't want to date him in real life, but I love to read about him. My thing with him is that like, okay, he's a jerk, but I didn't feel like, I don't feel the chemistry between them. Right. I mean, a little bit towards the end of the book where he like calls her Mac. You know, I was like, oh, maybe he like, maybe there's something. Um, he used her first name. Um, yeah. But like, I didn't really feel the chemistry. He seems to genuinely dislike her, right? I think and, he does. Yeah, like, and I get it because she's like this 22 year old idiot, basically, mm -hmm. you know, um, and he's, 30 that's in, that's in quotes um yeah no spoilers we're trying um, we're trying here you know so to be like stuck with somebody who's just like going around and like hey hey what's going on what do you do like you know yeah that sort of thing so I get but and then the only time also like one of the only times we ever see it's like whenever he really like pays attention to her like there's one scene where he's kind of joking around and he's giving her like heated look it's when she's like showing a lot of skin yeah doesn't so he I, like push her up against a wall at some point yeah i mean and there's, there's a heated look yeah there are some heated looks there's that like one of the first the second scene with them when in the hotel right mm -hmm. when he like grabs her and holds her and bruises her ribs yeah that's pretty that's intense that's intense and the words that he uses for her are also really unkind as well and I, I mean, I think you're right. I don't think that he likes her. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that he probably has a good reason not to like her. She is looking after this thing that he's been trying to find for years, right? Mm-hmm. She's just this dumb blonde that waltzes into town and is asking about this like mythical famous book that nobody can get their hands on, but everybody wants. And she's just like talking about it because she doesn't have any idea. And so he perceives her as a threat to his plans and his goals and all of the things that he's been working on. And we don't know his motivations for it yet, but when you put that in perspective of what his actual motivations are, when you find them out later, it's Mm -hmm. understand. I mean, it's more understandable, I guess, why he would be such a jerk to her. She's threatening everything for him. Yeah. And, and do go ahead. And he, so I think he doesn't like her. And then later on, you know, he does call her Mac later on after he's decided, all right, I'm going to try to keep her from dying. And so I think that turns into he doesn't want to like her. Mm. And maybe okay. that's where some of that comes from. Yeah. I have to say some things that I do appreciate about him is that while he's secretive, he he does answer Max questions. I didn't feel like he ever, but he didn't want to, but he'll answer them. <laughs> you know, yeah. I felt like the answers he gave, he was telling her things that would save her and protect her, you know, like, yeah he's secretive but at the same time I didn't feel like he ever purposely like lied to her or anything he was kind of like a fae himself in that whole like twisting his words around avoiding things yeah I think that Baron's approach with Mac is it feels harsh Mm -hmm. in the way that he treats her yeah The words that he uses for her. I know that you have some notes about those and you're welcome to share those. But I think that especially when he decides that he is going to help her, the approach that he takes is of someone who is doing like the tough love type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is probably a good approach to take with Mac. Yeah, because she would get herself killed. Yes, she would. 100%. I feel like she has to learn those lessons, particularly with like the Fae and defending herself and stuff like that, the hard way. And so he takes her out, for example, to find fairies to kill once she gets a hold of the Sword of Destiny. And he doesn't abandon her, but he does let her. So they follow the gray man and she runs into him and realizes like, oh crap, he can see me. So she pretend like she's very resourceful and she pretends that she is ensnared. She's pre she's addicted to sex and ensnared by him. And then he gets a hold of her and she freezes him, but she puts herself in a bad position and he uses that as a teaching moment. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I mean, it sucks for her because she's dangling by her hair, but he's like, let's talk about all the things that you did wrong. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's how she's going to learn. I feel like Mac is really stubborn. Yeah, she is. I mean, look how long it took her to accept what was going on. Yeah. So I think that teaching her lessons 
the hard way, maybe, or her learning mm-hmm. things the hard way is probably the best way for her to learn. And it doesn't feel good. Like it makes Baron seem like a dick and he is like a dick anyway, but I think yeah. it's probably the best for her. Yeah. Um, so one of the things, so this is just surprising to me in general that he would say this considering what we know about him and everything. So he says that um, beautiful women rarely possess sufficient depth of character to survive without their pretty feathers. And he like looks at Mac very judgingly, Mm -hmm. judging, judgy, whatever, um, about it. And that's mean, right? But also, like, how has he never come into a pretty woman who, like, has substance in his entire life of 30 years? (laughs) (laughs) Never encountered, like, that's just, I was like, "Hmm." I guess when you're reading the book the first, I don't know. It's just a bad attitude. I like it. Well, yeah. He has a bad attitude. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a grumpy dick. And that's kind of his, his go-to for the whole rest of the season. season <laughs> series. I just don't see very many redeeming qualities in Grump. him in this first book. You know? Mm-hmm. Well... I think it's a redeeming quality that he's not jumping to try to save Mac every time she messes up. Yeah. She goes on and on about how independent and capable that she is, right? Mm-hmm. He and lets she... her figure that out. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. You know, he makes a comment about like, ugh, he tells her to go home, get married, make pretty babies and die. I think yeah, something like that, which yeah. is pretty harsh. But I also want to say at some point later on, she was talking about how she envisioned her life going and it was extremely similar to that. Mm-hmm. So I guess kind of going back a little bit to the beginning. So she struggles a lot with the police. Uh, her whole mm-hmm. family does with like police and Interpol and all of that. Um, trying to get answers because nobody's really helping and nobody's really helping because she's in like they're in a whole other country they don't have they're like there's no easy leads anything like that and I was like oh my gosh it's just I know it's not true but I was like it's just everywhere just like bad cops like it's an entire like worldwide crisis yeah of of this and the cop that she encounters is like uh, I don't know like there are times where I was like, he's just kind of like trying to be nice about it. Mm-hmm. Like, but he, he's bad at it. Cops should have sensitivity training. Yeah, they should. It's like they, they decided that there was nothing there. They decide. And a uh, part of this is also like, I feel like <sighs> Max has a quote in the book. And I feel like it pretty accurately describes kind of what's happening the mind works hard to reject that which opposes its essential convictions. And I feel like that's part of the issue with working with the police because she says to 
the or the the detective asks her like how long has her sister sister been using drugs and she says well she wasn't using drugs and he says well she had holes in her arms and and max says she has holes in her entire body part of her had been ripped and torn Mm -hmm. that's not something that um would happen for a drug user and so part of that is the the struggle with uh, getting them to see maybe the full picture mm-hmm. or working with their preconceived notions, right? They saw the holes, they assumed that wasn't the case, but they don't have the space because they don't know that it could be mythological creatures that killed her. <laughs> right. That's true. It's like, I mean, so everyone kind of passing her off is like slowly descending into the world of drugs. Yeah. Right. It's sort of like, well, that's not, I know her. That's not what my sister would do. But I mean, the uh, considering what the, actually happened was it's like she's getting involved with the Fae, which one seems more likely, right? Yeah. So it is understandable that her teachers and the cops and stuff were like, eh, she was involved with the bad crash. She like, seemed to be doing drugs, whatever. You know, obviously the reader knows that's not the case, but it makes sense. But her, the teachers were kind of harsh or the professor. They the prof- were. The one so one says this it about her sister. If she stood out at all, it was through her absence, not her presence. Mm-hmm. It's like, ouch! Like first off, like ugh, don't say that to somebody who's grieving. Like I, yeah, that was harsh. Although I yeah. do also like it though. At the same time, it was through her absence, not her presence. Mm-hmm. But like, not don't don't say that. <laughs> yeah. So. We talked, or I mentioned how this book was made into or released in 2006. I always think it's so interesting to look at. You know, that wasn't that long ago. I was 16. That feels like forever ago. Mm-hmm. I was, let's see, 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, she talks about how she has to go to the mall <laughs> to get a Nokia. <laughs> oh my gosh right did you ever have a nokia yes i sure did they were indestructible they really were (laughs) like they could get run over by a truck you could throw it at a wall (laughs) and still play snake (laughs) i was so good at snake oh i was probably just mediocre at snake i was probably fair I was great with that game. It's so (laughs) weird to read stuff like that Mm -hmm. and just think, wow, I was a teenager. I had one of those. Mm -hmm. Well, looking back on things like CDs too, there's, what is that song where it's like, I don't know, but it mentions like, um, she's not impressed by my like CDs my cd collection or something or my dvd oh she likes me for me yeah yeah that one (laughs) that and it's like oh yeah no now it's like she impressed by your streaming services do you have uh, (laughs) do you peacock you disney plus (laughs) you you just have netflix that's basic Uh. right Right, the updated leonardo song (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly oh that's Mm. so funny yeah um when mac goes to ireland like the first day she gets there 
she stumbles into what we find out later. They, they call them the dark zones, the areas of Ireland that have been abandoned basically. And, um, from the dark zone, she sees Baron's baubles and books, a bastion of light on the edge of the dark zone. And it calls to her and I adore absolutely love the descriptions of this store i want to live here i don't care about the beast library i want to live in baron's bubbles and books yes it sounds cozy yes there are fireplaces there are couches and little nooks where you can read and tears and uh throw blankets plus fiona is there and i don't really like fiona but every time i read about her I picture Elvira, the mistress of the darkness. And I know that that's not really how she's described at all, but I see Elvira with her breasts just popping out of her shirt every single time in my mind. Yeah. Well, I think that also though, does it's kind of like her person. I, I mean, I get the vibe too. It's kind of like her personality. Yeah. I feel like too. Mm-hmm. It's the vibe. Yeah. She's even off that vibe one of my favorite aspects of the story is how rich the storytelling is with the fae that are that are woven into our book mm-hmm. particularly like the gray man and the mini mouse thing the descriptions of them are horrifying which i really like she kind of explores the seely versus the unseely a little bit but then she really showcases some of the unseely monsters and I like that because a lot of times <laughs> when we're talking about the Fae, it looks like fairy porn. A lot of times, like everybody's beautiful and sexy and you want to have sex with all of them and they're just gorgeous and everybody wants to go to fairy. But there's this girl on TikTok. Her name is Piper, where she does. She has a master's in folklore. And she I does love videos. her. I love her. And she does like why you don't actually want to go to fairy. And these are the types of fairies in this book that she's talking about. Mm -hmm. These are the ones that you don't want to see, but that are pervasive in fairy. Yep. I will be avoiding the fae circles, I guess. But yeah, um, I know. I love that. I love when there are darker twists on things, you know, so even in some of the like maybe darker fae books, um, we have evil fae, but they're not always like, I mean, this is like really intensely ugly and gruesome. These descriptions, Mm -hmm. they're intense. They're not just like, oh, they're kind of ugly or like, oh, they have multiple arms or something like that, you know, Um, or, oh, they're just shadows. Well, there is one that's just shadows, but anyway. so I like seeing, you know, that darker twist to it that is closer to actual fade lore. Yeah. As well. Yes. I do too. Um, I feel like you don't you don't get that quite so much in a lot of the popular fairy books that are read right now. I mean, they yeah. There's one, I mean, there are some pretty good monsters and like Amelia Hutchins fairy books, and there are some like the Naga, maybe in the bog there's some solid monsters in like the agatar books mm-hmm. but they are mostly monsters in this series and yes that's how it actually is in theory they are monsters 
Yes. There are maybe five people in fairy that you want to have sex with. Willingly. Yeah. And you don't actually want to have sex with them because if you do, you will become pretty off and become addicted to sex until you, you know, fall apart and your brain melts out of your ears. Yeah. Like even the pretty ones are bad for you. Mm-hmm. It's all bad. Everything in fairy is bad for you. It's designed to kill you. <clears throat> yeah. So I think that Carrie Moaning the author does a fantastic job in her descriptions of these monsters. And I also really like the shades, the entire, like, like the, the story that she creates around the shades is really good too, because it starts off. You don't know that you're reading about shades. When Mac walks into the dark zone, she just notes that everything is abandoned. She walks past these cars and there are just piles of clothes and shoes and Mm -hmm. these yellowy husks that are just kind of rolling down the street like tumbleweeds. So Mac has walked into a dark zone, home to the shades. And she doesn't know what it is at that point, but she learns later that the shades are what devour people and the husks are just whatever they can't eat or process or what they leave behind. And I think that that really plays on like that, the sinisterness that goes along with being in the dark, right? Yeah, the other, I I agree. And the other thing, so they say that the shades eat people because they want to be people kind Mm -hmm. of. And I like that about these fake creatures because we also see that with the gray man. He's so um, jealous of people's beauty that he has to take it. Mm-hmm. And I like that we're seeing, like, they have these distinctive ways that they kill and what they want um, based on, I guess, they're just, like, who they are, like, what type of fate they are, like that. Mm-hmm. Instead of it just being like, we all want the same thing. Yeah. You know? World Dominion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I just want the body. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really creative. Well, and they don't have to have a body because they can glamour themselves, right? So um, I just think it's extremely creative. Even with the shades, the way that, so I think it's really clever how Behrens uses the shades to do his bidding for him. That ends Mm -hmm. up being what kills uh, Rocky O'Banion, the monster that comes after Behrens after they steal from him. They show up and Barron's just turns off the lights and that's the end mm-hmm. for Rocky and his friends. Speaking of the fairies that are the fae that you want to have sex with, Velaine, who is the Seely Prince, is beautiful and tries to rape Mac in a museum, which was very cringe to read. Uh, yeah. Did not enjoy that. No. Not at all. I do have to say, I like how she is able to like keep her sense about her like as much as possible, you know? Like she struggles, but she's realizing, she's like, no, wait, I don't know, you know? Mm -hmm. And then she like comes to and she's like half naked. Then what's worse is that woman 
uh, I don't actually know if we've been given her name yet. That woman, the gray-haired old lady who attacks her in the beginning of the book and berates her for staring at a fairy is there and present while this is happening. And Max, like, um, were you going to let me get raped? Yeah. And she talks about how if one of us dies, or like if she helps, then two people die instead of one person dying or something like that, which I guess mm. is, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that type of logic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't like that woman. Mm -mm. No. And that's also where the same time we find out that um, Mac is adopted. Mm -hmm. or might be adopted and Max is this thing that's really interesting is that she hates that lady you know for telling her and she makes this like comment about like I know you're not supposed to like kill the messenger but I I hate her for telling me and I was like you, you can definitely hate this woman like she, she's awful mm -hmm. good don't feel bad about it <laughs> yeah we have a few bad guys not necessarily bad guys but they're still bad guys in this book and one of them is Rocky O'Banion, who is a mobster who orchestrated the death of 27 women and children some years ago mm. to uh, become head mobster of the area, I guess. Um, it was weird to me <laughs> how mobster kills lots of people. He's also very reverent and churchy <laughs> he's got all of this like religious stuff and relics and pictures of the virgin mary and um anyway they break into rocky's cache of stuff and they steal a fey relic which ends up being the sword of destiny or the spear of destiny uh which M mac is like carrying in her purse and barons is like yeah, this is the thing that killed Jesus. And she's like, this thing killed Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that moment. That is the appropriate reaction, mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Um, it makes me wonder, like, what other relics have we picked up through history that we think are one thing, but they're actually not that at all? Oh, yeah, all the time. Oh, I swear I read about something where they thought it was some, like, religious symbol and it was like no that's a dildo <laughs> <laughs> they're like it's this like gorgeous carving and no that's a, that's a dildo <laughs> that's a dildo that's great or like every time they open up a mummy's sarcophagus and we worry about it, like it being the end of the world yeah yeah hey they opened up that one in Egypt around the plague or around plague around when COVID started things <laughs> never went back <laughs> you know yeah and then we have Malouche who is allegedly a vampire he just sounds like a spoiled party boy he killed his parents sold their property used the money to buy friends and a following I mean that's just sad plus he's like all into steampunk he's a steampunk oh vampire like all right the okay. whole <laughs> the whole thing 
about whether or not he actually is a vampire, right? Because we're not sure at first. Mm-hmm. Um, made me think about um, Vampire's Kiss with Nicolas Cage. It's this older movie. And he thinks he's turning into a vampire. I don't remember why. But like, he's like, oh no, my fangs aren't coming in. So he gets himself those Halloween <laughs> And is like, I'm a vampire. <laughs> This is terrible. And then he tries to like feed off of someone at one point. And they're like, what are you doing? (laughs) Get off of me. Yeah. That would be the normal response to this guy, (laughs) Malouche. Like, "Uh, dude. So we have that bad guy. I think it's so funny. They go to his house and Mac finds an object of power in his house. And she's got just like a rainbow and has her purse and so she just dumps the contents of her purse and steals from him Uh she loses points for uh subtlety i mean she had a point though what was she gonna do with all the stuff in her purse where was she gonna put it i know why did she need all of that stuff in her purse though once you have like a big purse, you realize like, oh, let me bring this. Like I could put deodorant in here in case I ever need that. Like two books, two, two books. This when week, I had contacts. Bag. Put, oh, go ahead. I said when I had contacts, I used to put like a contact lens solution, extra contacts in there, extra underwear. I don't know why my mom taught me. It was like, oh, I said underwear. Oh yeah. So, why, why, why do we get taught that? If you're going anywhere, pack seven pairs. I'll only be gone for two days. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Pack seven pairs of underwear. It's a disease. Purses are a disease. Mm-hmm. If you have the space, you'll fill it. Our other bad guy is the Lord Master, and we really don't get a whole lot of information about him. Mm-hmm. He's the bad guy, but he was Alina's boyfriend, Max's sister's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And Mac does think that he killed her, uh, but Jericho seems to doubt it. So with this book, Karen Remoning did a lot to set up things that are going to become relevant later in the series. Yes. I love books that do that. Like we saw this in um, Throne of Glass. Yes. A lot too. These books that are these things that, you know, foreshadow or get built on. Uh-huh. I love that. So at one point, Mac um, is talking about like vampires and stuff like this whole like supernatural world. And she said that she never really got into that world because she never wanted to escape reality. Right. It's always been good enough for her. And I was like, how do you never want to escape reality? Like, I feel like that's kind of like there has to in some point in your life. Right. That you wanted to escape reality. Um. But then I was thinking, you know, like, like you were saying before, she is super privileged and isolated, right? So yeah, maybe what she's had has been enough. And this is kind of emphasized by what Baron says. I suspect you must have lived in a borough so provincial and uninteresting that you never encountered one of them, a cloister town so utterly lacking distinction that it was never visited and never will be. Ouch. Rude? I don't know. But also funny. Yeah. I mean, not wrong. Yeah. Not wrong. <laughs> not wrong. Not nice, but nailed the head. N- nailed the head. Uh, yeah. What is the phrase? Hit the nail on the head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
I mean, he did. I don't know. Yeah. I think it is a good point. Part of me wonders if <laughs> escapism is actually like a, a thing that is that a normal thing, or is it? I I feel like everything is a trauma response now. So I don't know if the things that I think are normal are normal anymore, or if it's it's something I need to talk to my therapist about. I don't know. I mean, but when you think about escape, like wanting to escape, (laughs) people get like, I mean, not just with books, but like with TV, Mm -hmm. you know, games, video games, stuff like that. I Oh, but then again, like people always complain, you watch too much TV, you play video games too. I don't know. How many books do you read a week? Four or five? Oh, wow. I've read four or five this year. Oh. <laughs> and it, right, exactly. But it's interesting. So, you know, like you tell somebody, it's like, oh, I watched four seasons of a show, you know, this weekend. People are like, oh, that's all you did. But if you say, oh, I read four books this week and people are like, oh, wow, you read? Yeah. Like, that's so good for your brain. And I'm like, yeah not the kind of stuff that I'm reading here's the thing the average person in the United States reads at an eighth grade reading level that's true and that's they're worse in the state of Arkansas so yes I mean you're not reading like Charles Dickens or whatever but I feel like most of the time when you're reading you're having to work through comprehension and things like that so I don't know. I'm going to sound like a snob. Reading's better for your brain than TV. I mean, it probably is. It forces you to also use your imagination and stuff. Right. You can imagine all of those smutty things. <laughs> um, sometimes I can't imagine it and I need to draw pictures or I and need act it out. To draw- yeah. <laughs> and then I get hurt. <laughs> Matt goes to look for her sister, like to the, to the place where her sister died. Right doesn't tell anybody where she's going oh yeah she's very lucky yes and then she goes to police station they're not doing anything so she goes to the address by herself again doesn't tell anyone where she's going i have to say she was clever to figure out where it was yeah she she was clever yes i (laughs) just feel like her situational awareness is not very good right now it's not very bad. God, she just, okay. So she goes and she finds the address and she finds some of her sister's stuff, including pictures. And instead of being like, oh, okay, so there's clearly somebody here, right? Let me take their stuff because it's my sister's and I'm going to go. She takes the stuff and then sits down inside this house, I guess, at the bottom of the stairs and starts like looking through the pictures. And I'm like, oh my God. Just leave. Yeah. Please leave. Yep. But she doesn't, of course. No. Why would you? <laughs> Truly, why would you? I mean, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not the best decision making she's ever done. No. Or the safest. No. Nor was her decision to go into the creepy warehouse <sighs> by herself. Yeah. And if Barons hadn't shown up to save her, she would have died. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, uh, hmm. 
just, it's just that poor planning that I like, well, and she is 22. So frontal lobe is not fully developed at this point. Maybe she's just suffering from an underdeveloped frontal lobe. She's got some executive functioning issues, maybe. Yeah. Mac and Barron's do have a nice little moment at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And she's all broken and he's painting her nails and doing a bad job and she's criticizing him, but it's still really cute. It is cute. Yes. It's not, we're kind of working towards like a tentative friendship here. This, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, I guess, probably technically a fantasy romance, but there is no romance. Like the romance is not a thing in the first book, maybe in the second book. It doesn't I think it's not until like the minute. third book. Yeah. 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 So this is definitely more like urban fantasy yeah. and fantasy romance, at least initially. Yeah. But they have a nice little moment. He doesn't seem quite so terrible. Mm-hmm. Things are a little bit friendlier. And then the book, the infamous book that Mac is looking for because her sister uh, demanded or hinted or said that it's going to be the key to everything passes by and she is violently ill and passes out because she's very sensitive to it. It passes by and that sets up the next. All righty. Uh, let's talk about our quotes. Sure. So I picked, uh, so Baron says this, um, and he says, don't believe anything dead until you've burned it, poked around in its ashes, and then wait a day or two to see if anything rises from them. And I, I love that because there's a similar quote somewhere else where it's like, make sure you cut off their heads, light them on fire and like throw their heads somewhere else. Right. And it's, it's true. You got to make sure these things are dead. Otherwise they will come back. Yes. All the time. You got to sit there and watch, make sure they don't come back. No respawning. Yeah. This quote is my guiding quote for every book that involves a monster that we're trying to kill. It's not enough to kill it. You've got to make sure that it's dead, that you've completely destroyed it and scattered its ashes across the world. Like, Mm-hmm. yeah but then I also like this one and uh, this comes with like a series of, of phrases or a passage that Barron's says to Mac Mac makes a comment about how she's gonna die and he said well words have power so if you think you're gonna die you probably are but then he also talks about the impact that hope has and this shows up throughout the series and I think about it a lot as well he says, hope strengthens and fear kills. Mm-hmm. And I really like that, particularly because it highlights the hope, the, the impact that hope has. But I think also this becomes more prominent in the series. It's not just fear, but hopelessness. Yeah. Causes you to act from a place of fear. And it's dangerous. All righty. That wraps up Dark Fever by Karen Marie Moaning. We will be off for a few weeks while Vicky is traveling, and when we come back, we'll be discussing Ledge by Stacy McEwen, and we're so excited because Stacy will be joining us once again to discuss her first book. So we hope you join us for that episode. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you for listening to Literary Quest. We hope you enjoyed our episode. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we can be found at Literary Quest Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. You're also welcome to share your thoughts and ideas with us via email at literaryquestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.